Our scripture text today is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll be looking there at verses 14 through 18. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed from into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. And again, may God bless this reading of his holy word. I'm going to be preaching twice for you today, of course, uh, this service now and our afternoon service. And my title is the same for both sermons because they're both coming from this text. It's called Free Indeed. Those are two words that we read in the words of Christ from John chapter 8. And so we'll be looking at that subject from this text. I'd like to let you know ahead of time that uh, this afternoon's service, because of, uh, I guess, who I am and my background, will have some church history and American history integrated into it. And uh, so I hope that's uh, exciting to you. You may know that my brother Mark is a part of the Free Church, teaches church history at Geneva Reformed, and also teaches at Bob Jones University. So history has a thing with us. I also met my wife in U.S. history because we were both history minors. So uh, history kind of permeates everything. Of course, we're looking at a historical book that God has inspired. And so I hope that is exciting to you. If you don't like history, I hope by the end of today you do, or you will. And uh, it's a wonderful thing, especially church history. So, and let me say too, uh, reintroduce myself, figure this is in order. It's like, who is this fellow here uh, in our pulpit today? My name is Chris Sidwell. I'm uh, the middle of three boys, our younger brother, Mark, my older brother, our younger brother is Randy, who lives in Illinois, and uh, we are native Hoosiers, so it's good to be back home in Indiana. Once again, I grew up in Newcastle, and uh, kind of our background is uh, our folks were Southern Kentuckians for many, many, many generations. I'm a first-generation Hoosier, uh, lived here for 18 years, went to Newcastle at that time, Newcastle Chrysler High School because Chrysler was the main employer in our town and most of my relatives worked there. And my father did not. He worked for a corporation called Dana or Perfect Circle. So maybe that's familiar, but the automotive industry was big in our family. And uh, my first vehicle was a 74 Duster that I wish I had back even today. But uh, it's good to be with you all. Good to be back in Indiana. I'm so thankful for the Free Church, my brother being a member. I was reminiscing a little bit about the Free Church. Uh, the first man I ever heard preach was Dr. Ian Paisley. That's a good place to start. And I was a student. 
And then my brother joined the Free Church, and I was able to hear Dr. Karen's on a few occasions. Um, then I formed a close friendship with a brother I was able to see here back in October, Reggie Kimbrough. We met in Pittsburgh, where I've been living for 30 years now. And he came for a conference, and uh, he's been a dear friend. was able to see him at the week of prayer back in October for the first time in many years. And uh, so I appreciate him. Of course, your pastor, Pastor Bannister, gotten to know just in more recent days. And uh, I also was reminiscing of a special blessing that was given to me. Our church hosted a conference that the Free Church is a part of. I'm actually a minister in the Bible Presbyterian Church. That's where I've been for a number of years. And uh, we hosted the American Council of Christian Churches National Meeting a number of years ago. And we're so privileged to have Dr. and Mrs. Frank McClellan at our church. So that was uh, quite a blessing. And uh, we were given an invitation to visit them in Toronto, and that hasn't happened yet, but uh, I hope so in some future time. But uh, it was good to get to know them and to have them with us. So uh, there are a lot of connections that I've had with many of your ministers, and uh, again, a privilege to be here with you all today. Our subject is free indeed. And again, I read those words from the lips of Christ, as he said that if we are in him, we are free indeed. And I want us to look at this subject in two ways today. And in my sermon this morning, there's going to be two points. I like to give kind of my outline at the beginning. That way, hopefully, I'll know and you'll know where we're going together, God willing. I want us to see, first of all, the background on the book of Corinthians, the background. It's always good to know the context of these books and the Apostle Paul being our author, there's a few things that we need to know or maybe to uh, hear again in case we do know them. And then secondly, I want us to see the biblical direction from bondage to freedom. So we'll see the background on the book of Corinthians and then the biblical direction from bondage to freedom. And again, we'll follow that up even more practically this afternoon. Let's talk about, first of all, then, the background of the book of Corinthians. We believe it was written approximately in A.D. 56. Of course, our New Testament was being written in the first century as God inspired the authors, the human instruments that were used. And, of course, the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of what we have in the New Testament. And Corinthians, first and second is what we read. He speaks of other words in his epistles here that he had written to the Corinthians, ways of rebuke or an encouragement. So we know that he had a great burden for this church. It was actually on his second missionary journey the Apostle Paul traveled to Corinth. And he was there, as we're going to see in a few moments, we'll have a reading from the book of Acts in the context of when he was in Corinth. But he was there about 18 months in getting this church planted. Now, the region of Corinth is Greece. It's in Greece. It was a port city, and it was a trade route back in the day. Now, it actually sits on what is called an isthmus, and that's not a speech impediment there, but an isthmus, which is actually a narrow strip of land bordered by water on both sides. So you know that region. If you look at a map, uh, I have a great love with maps even to this day, and you'll see... Uh, where Corinth is located, both ancient and even the modern-day Corinth. Now, the culture of that place is that it was very cosmopolitan, a 
very much a city from people all over the world, but was also a very worldly city as well. Probably in the day when Paul was there, the time of the writing that we have here was about 500,000 people. So that was you know, large for back in that day, especially. So it was a city with a lot of trade, a lot of activity, a lot of people, a lot of worldliness. Now we think of that region historically, we think of uh, Greece and their love of sports. And the Apostle Paul often made references to sports, so he must have had some enjoyment of sports himself, as the way he references at times in his epistles. But the Olympic Games that we know of, even our modern Olympic Games, well, they had the ancient Olympic Games, but uh, Corinth didn't want to be outdone, and so they had their own rival form called the Isthmian Games. So they had their own uh, sports uh, festivities that uh, were ongoing there in that region. Now, talking about the culture and its worldliness, they were godless but they were polytheistic. I'm sure you follow me on that. They were godless. They didn't know the true God. Remember, Paul was in a nearby city 50 miles away in Athens. So Athens to Corinth is about 50 miles and saw all of the godlessness and the idol worship. And remember that there was that one idol in case they had left one out to the unknown God. Well, Paul took that occasion to say, this unknown God that you're talking about, let me declare him to you. And so when he went here to Corinth, he went to a place of people who did not know the true God. So a very worldly place, a godless place. Uh, One of the things that was known for to show how pagan they were was the temple of the uh, goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there thousands of temple prostitutes worked their trade there in that area. I mean, a terrible, horrible uh, situation, but that's what was going on, the godlessness, the perversion, uh, the sexual promiscuity, but uh, that's where they were in this area. And actually, Corinth, there was a term that was used to describe the area or a person that had been under their influence to be Corinthianized a person being Corinthianized. What's that mean? Basically, to give your life over to complete debauched living. So we're seeing what a worldly, godless, terrible area it was. But Paul, that apostle to the Gentiles, God leading him, went and proclaimed Christ. You know, I think of the comparison of the day in Corinth and our own day, there's really not any difference. Uh, Man's heart has always been depraved in their sins and there's even more ways that we see that people have to explore their sin but nonetheless the problem was still the same people without christ and paul having that burden for the gentiles went and took the good news of christ unto them so these people were definitely corinthianized and we're going to see from our text some of the problems that paul discusses of their bondage and the way to freedom in christ Now, in John 8, we read a few moments ago a context where Christ met with opposition. That was not unusual. We know the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had a hatred for Christ. And we saw it displayed here in John 8 as he told them who they were. You're of your father, the devil. You know, the people that seek to make Jesus out some 
I'm not sure what the fill in the blank is, but uh, a weak and uh, very uh, mild mannered. I think we see differently in the New Testament scriptures. I mean, taking a whip and driving people out of the temple, uh, overturning their tables, the words that he used, the right words of righteous indignation. Well, here he says, you, you religious leaders are of your father, the devil. He named names. He told them what they were. They didn't like it. But what they really didn't like is the fact that this man that they were hearing and seeing claimed to be gone. And we see that beautiful statement at the end of John 8 where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Do we know what he was saying? Absolutely. Did they know what he was saying? You better believe it, because what were these wonderful religious people going to do? They were getting ready to take up stones and stone him to death because he had just claimed to be God. Well, he was God. He was the I am. We think about Exodus when Moses talked to God from the burning bush. What's your name? I am who I am. That's who Christ was claiming. They knew what he was saying. He knew what he was saying. And he told them that he was God. So he met with opposition from the religious leaders. Well, Paul certainly met with opposition as he sought to preach here to these people. So I'd like for us, as I said, I love the context. I love to try to learn what it was like historically. And the Bible, God's inspired record, gives us that exact context. So if you'll turn back just for a moment to see when Paul went to this city of Corinth, turn back to Acts chapter 18, and we'll see the context as it was in the day when he went there. He had been in Athens in chapter 17 on his second missionary journey, and now he is going to Corinth. And we'll read verses 1 through 6, Acts chapter 18. The Bible says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now keep in mind that's about a 50-mile journey. Even in that day, not too far, but far enough. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And we talked about just a moment ago that when the Lord Jesus was declaring who he was, declaring the good news about himself, there was opposition. And the main opposition that we see is from the religious leaders. Well, here Paul, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, the uh, intellectual that he was, but also the man who had been saved by God's grace on the Damascus Road, the burden he had to declare Christ everywhere he went, as we see here. One of the things he did, being a Jew, was going into the synagogues and proclaiming Christ. Well, we see here that when he had made this step to the Jews in verse 6, 
They were opposed and they were blasphemed. So he basically shook his raiment, shook the dust off his feet. And he says, I'm clean from this. I think in the modern day, Paul said this basically, I've had it with you. I've had it with you people. I'm leaving out from the Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles primarily. And of course, he knew that God had called him by grace to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so that's what we see being fulfilled here. But he says those words, I will go unto the Gentiles. So here we have the context of Corinth, the place that God sent him on his second missionary journey for 18 months, establishing a church there. Now, when you think about Corinth, and we'll go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and what I've said about the culture, it wasn't a nice place. And even as you read the epistles, you know that Paul had to address some of the issues, some of the sin issues that were there. And, uh, but yet Paul, seeing these ones who had come to faith, they were like his children and like a father to them. You can see his love demonstrated even as he had to rebuke them. He also encouraged them as well. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to see that these people, as I mentioned, are like all people. They're in bondage. And Paul's going to give them the message of Christ. And so in this chapter, chapter 3, one of the things that we see, it's not primarily our focus today, but one of the things that we see is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And seven times, and I don't seek to go overboard on numbers and their meaning, but seven times in this chapter, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. So I think that's somewhat significant. But the ministry of the Spirit and what the Spirit does. But what we will see here is that the ministry of the Spirit primarily leads to the glorification, the magnification of Christ. That's what he does. His ministry is intended. The Spirit does not speak of himself, but the Spirit seeks to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, secondly, I'd like for us to see the biblical direction. And this is actually a journey that all of us must take if we are to be followers of Jesus Christ. What God does by his work of grace in us is that direction from bondage where we all are to be free, to be, as Christ said, free indeed. So the first thing I'd like for us to see this morning under that heading of the biblical direction from bondage to freedom is the condition of the mind, or let's make it personal, the condition of our minds when we are apart from Christ. Look at verse 14 back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says very clearly here, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. What is the condition of the mind of the unsaved? Well, Paul makes it in one word, makes the statement in one word, blinded. The minds are blinded. Of course, all that was available to the first century to read was the Old Testament. As I said a moment ago, the New Testament was being written in the first century. So what they had to read to refer back to was the Old Testament. But as Paul says, in their minds being blinded, their minds, as we'll talk about in a moment, being veiled, when they were reading the Old Testament, they didn't see the truth of Christ. 
I mean, think, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch when he was in the desert and Philip was called by God to go witness to him. He had the Old Testament scriptures open, didn't he? And he was reading the passage from Isaiah 53. Think about how clear that message is in Isaiah 53 of the person and work of Christ. Tell you a quick story, true story. There's a, a minister that I've not met, but I know of him and his testimony. And uh, his testimony is called From Freud to Jesus. Kind of shows you where he was. And some of you may know of this man as I give you that. You can actually see it you know, with the technology online. But From Freud to Jesus, he was a New York Jew. And uh, very educated, very worldly, and uh, kind of a long story short, he was... Uh, a part of a man, man's ministry that, uh, this little history again, uh, a little aside, that the first man that was ordained in the Bible Presbyterian Church, this may surprise you, was Francis Schaeffer. Probably a name that you've heard or read his writings possibly. So he was the first man ordained back in the 1930s. And uh, Schaeffer eventually left the BP and the way things went around he became part of the PCA that's what happened but he had this ministry and at one time it's interesting we have a missionary who is 98 years old and his son is working with him in Guatemala and he talks about Fran Schaefer Fran Schaefer Fran because they served together in the independent board for Presbyterian foreign missions so uh, he knew him in that sense when they served together well anyhow long story short you know that he started Labrie and he went to Europe and uh, this guy from New York went to the Labrie. I don't know how he wound up there, but he did. And so he had one of the men who was witnessing to him, and he said, I'd like to read something to you. And he read Isaiah 53. And he said, oh, of course it could be that way. I mean, that's a firsthand account of the New Testament, right? You're reading to me from... And then he turned the Bible and showed him he was reading from Isaiah 53. And that's what God used to bring this man who followed Freud... By grace, the Lord used that to bring him to Christ. So you see what I'm saying here about how we are all in bondage and our minds are literally blinded. And in the reading of the Old Testament, it says they were still blinded. They were veiled to the truth as it was in Christ. And so we read here in verse 14, their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil. Now think about what we read in John 8. Or think about what we read in the book of Acts concerning Paul's ministry. You can see the blindness of these people. How they were enraged when they heard the truth of Christ. How they uh, were blaspheming. How they wanted to kill people. But yet they said that they were children of Abraham. Right? That's what they claimed. But he said if you were really children of Abraham, you wouldn't want to be killing other people. Especially the incarnate son of God. But their minds were blinded. The truth is that that's where they were spiritually. And unto this day, as the Old Testament is read, they don't see Christ. You know, that's one of the wonderful things that I love so much about the Reformed faith, and especially even your uh, denomination in particular, of seeing Christ in the Old Testament, knowing that he's there uh, from the beginning. I mean, uh, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. You shall bruise his head. He shall bruise your heel. Right there, the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the protevangelium, the first gospel. So uh, Christ all through the message of Christ in the Old Testament. But they're blinded to this fact 
of Christ. Now, it's interesting that Paul follows this up by saying a bit more specifically. Look at chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians in verses 3 and 4. And here is what is happening. Here's what he says specifically. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds. There it is. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So we see it. We know, as we'll speak maybe in just a moment, about our our nature innately. We are spiritually dead. We are born in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. But the specifics here of our minds, of how Paul describes it, is that the God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded their minds that they don't see the glory of the gospel. I remember... uh, minister once saying that when you throw down the message of the cross of Christ, one of two things is going to happen. Either there's going to be that repulsion, the hatred of that, fleeing from it, which is the natural way people react to that, or there's going to be that attraction to it. But that attraction is not because of us, is it? It's because of the spirit drawing us and showing us the glory of the cross and how the cross is the central point in human history. Remember history, as I've talked about already, history, history, history is what? His story. History is his, his story. And so the God of this world has blinded their minds. And one of the great symbolic things that God did about this removing the veil happened, we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, for from the top to the bottom, the veil was ripped in two. It was a miraculous thing. That was something God did to show us that no longer were we going to have the sacrificial system. It had been finished. Jesus cried that word in the Greek and in the English in three words, it is finished. I remember hearing a converted Roman Catholic priest. He said, what is finished is finished. What is done is done. There's nothing left for us to do. And we want to do In our natural state, we want to do, do, do. And religion says do. Whereas here we read, it is done. Christ has done it for us, our substitute and on our behalf. So secondly then, under this heading of our journey from bondage to freedom, not only is there the condition of our minds, but Paul talks about the condition of our hearts, the mind and heart. Look please at verse 15 of our text. But even unto this day... When Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. The veil is upon their heart. In the last verse, in verse 14, he speaks about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So we have the Old Testament scriptures in their entirety. But he gets more specific here. He talks about Moses, which we call the law or the Pentateuch. Very specific, the first five books of Moses. And so I ask, and I've already demonstrated, but I ask hypothetically here, do you see Christ when you read the law? The answer is absolutely, yes. And I quoted from Genesis. Even Moses himself said there's going to be a prophet raised up. 
It wasn't talking about any Old Testament prophet. He was talking about Jesus Christ, our, as our catechism says, our prophet, our priest, our king. That's who would be raised up on our behalf. But it didn't matter if they were reading the entire Old Testament or they were reading the law. They didn't see Christ. First, because their minds were blinded by the God of this world. But now we see that veiling taking place, the veiling of the heart. They don't see Christ. Now, let me reemphasize again that we are spiritually dead and spiritually bound. And God must bring us life and set us free. So let's look back at the Old Testament context right in our context here. Paul talks about this. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And so Paul speaks about this veiling. So if you'll look here in chapter 3 beginning at verse 7, let's look at what uh, Paul says concerning Moses and the ministry to Israel. Verse 7, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of the righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that they have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished." You remember this event that he's describing about Moses and the way his face looked when he was in the mountain having that conversation with God, receiving the Ten Commandments, how his face was literally glowing. And the people said, put a veil on. We don't want to seek to try to look at Moses' face with this uh, glowing that was taking place. But it seems the context of what Paul is saying about that event that the veil was put on ultimately because it was going to fade. It was a fading glory. They still didn't want to see it. They were terrified by what was happening. There's people saw, you know, the presence of God and what was taking place. But yet that covering as that glory that was fading. And of course, for us, as we're going to see this afternoon, we're going to have a beholding of that glory that does not fade. That is the wonderful thought of all the thoughts that we can have as much as we can of what heaven will be like is that we will be able to behold Christ's glory. Do you know Christ said in John 17, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons he wants us there is to behold his glory, a glory that will not fade. We'll be able to see him. And uh, I was reading while I was preparing for this, that uh, song, uh, the, the Sands of Time Are Seeking. And uh, glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. We'll be there to behold our King and Savior forever. But a glory that was fading as Moses covered his face, it was veiled. Well, the illustration is not only was Moses covering his face, but the hearts were veiled. They could not see because a veil had that job to cover. You could not see. Well, spiritually speaking, the heart 
Right? The center of our being is veiled according to the word of God. And that's exactly what he says. So let's read this again with that in mind, what Moses has said and what Paul says about Moses. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. So we see very clearly our minds are blinded. Our hearts are veiled. And if you need a description of the human heart, you don't have to go any further than in one verse in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? So we see the condition of the heart. Well, thirdly and finally this morning, under this heading of bondage to freedom, as we talked about the mind being blinded and the heart being veiled, Let's talk about the conversion of the soul, the conversion of a soul in verse 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I'd like to say to us, and probably as we read this, that we see something that especially with our children here too, that we want to have understanding, preach that we know and understand. It speaks in verse 16 about when it shall turn to the Lord. Something is not quite as clear here potentially for us, and we're going to do our best to clear that up. My father, as I said, grew up in Kentucky, right on the Tennessee line. And uh, he's told me he's with the Lord. He's told me stories about his childhood and lots of exciting things that went on back in his life and some of the people. And I remember my cousin and I, who lives not too far from here, have family that's still in the Newcastle area, about we were bemoaning the fact that there's a complete lack of characters who are alive today on planet Earth. We knew some very unique people growing up. And uh, some of those unique people are there, but just, just, I mean, they were just being themselves and they would crack you up. They were just funny, funny people and sometimes kind of weird or whatever. And uh, my father told me about a lady that I never met that was their neighbor. And uh, the way we would have said it in our Kentucky Hoosier way back in the day, that she was a few bricks short of a full load. Do you know what I'm saying? All right. Not quite all there. Okay. And uh, my father was one of many children and he was the next to the youngest. He had a younger sister and her name was Frances. She went to be with the Lord. This would be two years ago. And uh, this neighbor, she was over there and they were like kind of looking where Frances was. And she shouted out, it's okay. As long as it is with me. All right. She's talking to about my Aunt Frances, it is okay if it is with me. Now, generally, parents, we probably don't refer to our children as it's or to each other as it's, right? Uh, well, maybe you have that feeling sometimes that uh, that's what you think, but you don't refer to each other as it. Well, here it tells us that it turns to the Lord. But what we have is a person, by God's grace, turning to the Lord. A man or woman, by grace, God turning them. And that's what we're learning here about the fact of conversion. So nevertheless, when one, when a person shall turn to the Lord, 
That is the message of conversion. If you read the New Testament scriptures, if you read the books, book of Acts in particular, we see the message is repent and be converted. Repent and be converted. Converted. Conversion. That turning that takes place when one turns. Uh, very closely related to repentance and that turning and the new direction, the new uh, desires, the way that we go as we follow after the Lord. And that's what Paul is telling us here, that when one turns, then one has that veil removed. You see, there's several statements, brief statements that we find, especially in the writings of Paul, where he speaks of what it means to be a believer. But he has a favorite designation that we just read a moment ago. It's actually in verse 14. Two words that are so, so wonderful. And Paul used them over and over and over. Here they are. In Christ. In Christ. If any man be where? In Christ. In Christ. The only safe place to be now and forever is in Christ. That is the only safe place to be. You know, it was proved a number of years ago, and I remember that morning well, that two buildings that seemed very strong and uh, very secure were able to be brought down. Not a safe place. Houses that collapse. There's nothing that is, you know, forever or safe. It's one of the things I did learn. I don't know anything about physics, but I do know, or, or science as a matter of fact, but uh, second law of thermodynamics. Everything is running down. Everything is running down, so I'm told. So what we see in this passage in particular is how God shows us the gospel by the Spirit that Christ is the only place of safety. He is the only hope for us in this life and the life to come. Nevertheless, when one shall turn to the Lord and is turned to the Lord by grace, the veil shall be taken away. That veil being removed, that we can see Christ by faith. Christ can be seen by faith through God's grace. And the Holy Spirit, one of his tasks as we read about the ministry of the Spirit, is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful passage here that in this brief section, Paul emphasizes of how we can be free. Christ said in John chapter 8 that through him we can be free indeed. And in this passage, we're learning and we'll learn a bit more this afternoon of that freedom that we have in Christ alone, being brought from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, being put from spiritual deadness to spiritual life, all because of the work of God's grace in us. So you see the direction, you see the work, the preaching of the gospel, the power of the gospel unto salvation to everyone that believes, God working by his grace in us. So I pray that the Lord will enable us to see the glory of Christ. As I mentioned, we now on this side of glory, and as our passage said, uh, it's through like beholding in a glass, only partially. Oh, it's a blessing to 
walk by faith and not by sight, but what it will be for us in that day, that day, a glorious day of Christ coming when we will be with him. If he does not come before our death, then when we are absent from the body, are present with the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of that wonderful resurrection, which is ours in Christ, to see him as he is, to behold his glory. So may God help us, and I trust this morning that God has worked in you in such a way that you are a believer in Christ, you are a follower of Christ, you are in Christ, the only truly safe place to be. I mentioned about uh, my family a little bit, and I remember leaving the graveside when my father had uh, passed away, and of course my mother a few years later was laid to rest there too. They're buried in Kentucky, back in the area where they were from. And she said, Chris, the only thing that matters when we lay our heads down on the pillow tonight, the only thing that really matters is knowing Jesus Christ. That's all that really matters. I think of all the, peop- the things they're, they're pursuing and they're running after and they're doing, you know, and even for ourselves, you know, I know we must live in this world. We're in it. We're not of it. But the only thing that really matters is knowing Jesus Christ. And this passage, I think, helps us to focus that, again, for our own responsibility of sharing this good news message, but also living in light of that in our own lives. So to God be the glory, great things he has done. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he loved us and gave himself for us. And so, Father, we praise you that this day that as we have read your word we have been able to see christ we see the ministry of christ father we thank you for this apostle to the gentiles who went and often hazarded his own life to give the good news to the gentiles these people in corinth who were in the bondage of iniquity he went and preached christ father we thank you that There was a time for us, too, when we were able to hear that good news message. For the message is always the same. The message has not changed. And we thank you that the gospel truly is the good news of Jesus Christ and his finished work. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this congregation. We thank you so much for the Indianapolis Free Church and for the ministry of the Free Church here and in other parts of the world. We ask that you would empower your servants who proclaim the word that you would fill them with your spirit to preach Christ. Lord, may souls be turned to you. May they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for your work of grace here in our lives because we are told that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to do just that. Oh, Lord, we know that that is your will for us. And we pray that we will see it take place. Father, we praise you for your mercy, love, and grace to us. And we thank you that you so loved us that you gave your son to die in our place. And so we ask now, Father, again, as we have prayed that you will help us in what we have heard, now to practice what we have learned. And Father, as your word tells us, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, May we do all to the glory of God. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.